Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, episode 43, one that we call housing. This is part two of the final event of Atmosphere 14, which we recorded on March 11th, 2022. We're coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. My name is Terry McLeod. For 14 years, Atmosphere has been an annual interdisciplinary design symposium at the faculty advancing academic enrichment and interdisciplinary research by creating an opportunity for students and instructors and friends of the faculty to interact with distinguished keynote speakers, scholars, and designers from around the world. Last time on episode 42, we introduced you to our three keynote speakers as they spoke about what we called a conversation on living together again. In that episode, we spoke to Diana Lind, who's an urban policy researcher in Philadelphia. She spoke about her book, Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, and Happier Housing. We also spoke to Megan Marin, a curatorial assistant at the Canadian Centre for Architecture, the CCA, in Montreal. She was a researcher on the recent book, A Section of Now, Social Norms and Rituals as Sites of Architectural Intervention. Today, we're joined by Johanna Herme, co-founder and managing partner of Winnipeg's 5468796 Architecture, for our final in-depth atmosphere conversation. Johanna is currently a visiting scholar at Cornell University's College of Architecture, Art, and Planning in Ithaca, New York. She's the author of the forthcoming book, Platform, Middle, Housing for the 99%. She joins us from Ithaca, New York. Hello, Johanna. Thanks for having me. And I'm really coming into this conversation from a perspective of a active practitioner. We've been sort of in the housing production trenches, so to speak, for the past 15 years with all of our colleagues here who've contributed over the years. And when we sort of think about the whole North American uh, context compared to, let's say, the European or Asian context, it's interesting to note that over 95% of the housing production in Canada is done by the private sector. And that to me is, is one of the biggest barriers to it being more accepted or more affordable and a better model for the environment and of course answering the housing crisis. That number is even worse in the US. It's 0.7% um, of the housing stock is public or social housing. So that's really the big problem. But then how did we get into this? We've been teaching at the various universities for quite a few years. And then in 2019, we were engaged to do a studio in IIT in Chicago. And the request was from the then Dean, Michelangelo Sabatino, to um, also have a conference in housing. And we invited a bunch of our colleagues across the continent to participate in it. And it was really the launching point for this particular publication. What it started out as being is this idea that we would simply do a little booklet as a follow-up to the symposium, but it since then has expanded into a 350-page, 45,000-word book that, that is not only covering the content of the symposium, but then we really could not help ourselves, but um, sort of started thinking that, you know, there's a lot of learning that we've sort of done over the last 15 years. And through any of that work that we do at the universities, uh, we've sort of realized that there's a lot that we could share and we could certainly pave the way for students, architects or practitioners entering in the housing realm, some pain of, of 
discovering some of these things that we've learned and, and wanted to put together almost that outlines some of the issues that are in the book framed as macro, so issues that are really outside of the traditional realm of architecture, policy, commodification, finance, some of the urban design issues uh, around politics and, and policy, like I said, and then really how finance ultimately drives form and that margin on which architecture can improve the quality of life for those who inhabit our domestic spaces is really, really, really narrow. But then the micro section of it, so it's a three-part book, gets into what are then the things that we do have in our toolkit? Uh, what can we do as design professionals to improve those qualities? Some of the contents of the book here, flipping through. So this is from, again, our collaborators on the symposium part, some of our friends from like Marin Amodio from Vancouver and Canva from Montreal and a lot of the practitioners from the US, uh, Chicago, Houston. What's the launching point of all of this? So we gathered a lot of lessons from that and then kind of dived into the research and trying to put our thoughts together about those macro issues. Again, when we look at the issue of how much we're relying on that private sector with very little means actually to even incentivize uh, that production and allow for affordability to occur, we understand that you know, private development is there because they're business and they're the, they have to make a profit. And how can we operate within that framework, actually gain quality without having the policies in place that demand for that? In, in Sydney, Australia, they do have something called the flat design code that was first implemented in 2000 there and then updated in 2015 and sets as regulations of how much natural sunlight you have to receive into a suite. And as far as I'm aware, none of that exists in, in North American context. There are a lot of things that we could do, certainly on the policy side and on the politics side, that would affect outcomes. But instead, we do have some modest zoning initiatives. Diane touched on some of them. Uh, the Minneapolis reconfiguration of uh, single-family zoning uh, across the city. Those are happening more and more. There's soft density through uh, laneway housing and other things. And of course, these are urban issues as well. But as, as far as, you know, very specific policy that allows us to push for quality as architects are almost non-existent. And so then in the micro section of the book, we try to get into specific tools that uh, we as architects can employ to try to ensure that quality does come through. And this is really through the lens of our own projects, so trying to outline the issues, you know, whether it has to do with having a really deep floor plate and trying to carve quality out of that, whether it has to do with having to provide flexibility or adaptability. And so we go through different examples as, as uh, we talk about things like how do you deliver quality for the same cost or less through various means of innovation at the sort of detail level. We talk about different uh, ways that we increase efficiency in multifamily housing. Both myself and my business partner, I haven't lived in a house since, I guess, here. <laughs> so we also come to it as from a perspective of understanding or having developed an understanding that really what I think keeps multifamily housing from happening at a larger scale in North America is really core uh, to this idea that we lack the yard space, the connective tissue, the in-between that is so familiar to us from the sandbox from 45 years ago back home, where this collective space is an extension of the domestic realm. And it is somewhere where you forge relationships and, and you have friendships for lifetime. So Terry, you've probably heard me talk about this many times, but that being one of the key elements uh, also aside from these sort of planning 
items that we're hoping to get across. But so in summary, I would just say that we are really hoping to provide this manual to others and hope that it is a call to action for us to everyone in the profession of architecture to try also harder and advocate for changes in the policy. Johanna, thank you so much for joining us from Ithaca, New York. And now we have a chance for our three guests to engage with one another. One of the things that we mentioned, or I mentioned at the beginning, is part of the conversation of today will be about how we're living together again, and this being the second anniversary of the designation of the global pandemic. From the point of view of the three of you here, what do you think has been the impact of the global pandemic in the way that we live together? Every month, almost, it feels like there's a different set of trends in terms of how people are thinking about things. Definitely for the past two years, there's been a surge of interest in having more space and more outdoor space and more private space and all. And so, you know, I probably couldn't have published the book at a worse time um, in that sense. But I also feel like now that people are starting to reemerge and the severity of COVID ha- is you know, very different than it was two years ago. I also have great faith in people's need for social interaction. And I foresee the fact that um, people will have, have taken some lessons from this experience and say, for example, I could imagine the kind of um, interdependence that people found through their pods, um, potentially taking this the, the form of, of a living situation. So there have been trends for the past two years, but I don't anticipate them kind of continuing or accelerating further. Megan, what are your thoughts on this? The sort of situation of the pandemic, as we all know, really allowed and in some cases forced us to experiment with other ways of living and working. It'll be really interesting to see what happens, even though we're here today for housing. Of course, a lot of us are in our houses right now and working. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what happens with our workspaces in the coming months and in the coming year. And I agree with Diana, it feels a little bit too early to tell. But I do think that there will be some changes that will come out of the fact that we have had no choice but to live differently and to have a space for reflection that maybe the old way was not working as well as we were convinced to believe that it was. I also think that as far as housing is concerned, some people have been able to uh, maybe try out the living arrangements that that I presented, uh, the the sort of architectural projects in a section of now, and maybe they actually really didn't like it. (laughs) And that's something that can actually be validated in a a temporary sense during this time. And uh, Johanna, what's your sense as to the way that the pandemic changed the way that we live? pessimist in me um, is worried about the sort of distance that we've created between ourselves and and others and sort of the further um, reliance on single family vehicles and wanting to sort of separate yourself, wanting that bigger yard, all of those things that seem counterintuitive to any of the progress that we had made prior in convincing people that, you know, we really have an environmental crisis on our hands, especially in North America, where we uh, occupy about four times the amount of space that people in Asia do per square foot per capita, um, and twice as much as Europe. Uh, it is not something that's sustainable. At the same time, I remain optimistic that whenever I interact with anybody of the new generation in our office or with my students, the concerns that they express for 
the world and, and where it's going are still in that lane where they want to find better alternatives. And so I'm hopeful we'll find a way to really bring the more sustainable multifamily model to the North American market. In Winnipeg, house prices have gone through the roof during the pandemic. And as a result, pushing more people out of opportunities in home ownership. What's your sense, Diana or Megan, from your cities as to what's going on in terms of the forces that are affecting real estate prices? I don't think that there's a wide enough, broad enough discussion, first of all, about the housing needs that we really have. Um, so often there'll be, you know, local conversations about, say, an old building that is zoned to be a, uh, like I'm thinking in my neighborhood, there was an old bar that went bankrupt during the pandemic. It's now on the market to be sold. It's zoned to be a, a multifamily building. And then people go up in arms when it's zoned to be a four-story building and they can't bear to see this old one-story bar be replaced with a four-story building. And I think you know people just aren't really informed to the degree of which the housing crisis is not just sort of an affordable housing crisis for people living in poverty, but it's for everyone. And that the lack of supply is just a huge problem for everyone. And we're just not building to keep pace with population growth, even though we're not growing so fast, you still need to add housing stock, especially given that we are now occupying more space, you know, square footage per person than we once did. Um, and those sort of norms of how much space you need for, say, like a family of four have really changed. So the lack of supply and the lack of broad focus on creating more housing supply is a huge issue. A huge factor in the ways that housing prices have changed is also the technological changes and how housing is bought and sold and who's buying and selling it. You know, there was actually a recent report about how something like 20% of housing that is bought by iBuyers is then sold to institutional investors who then turn that into rental housing. And so the kind of idea of housing being not owned just by you know, regular residents, but increasingly by institutional investors or uh, iBuyers who are holding onto the housing and renovating and flipping it, et cetera, that can have a really big impact, I think, as well on housing prices. And I would say, you know, just the last thing is that we have a system that really incentivizes people to find ways to increase their property values because it's, for many people, the hugest asset for them and a huge part of their equity, their, their livelihood. Um, and so people are really incentivized to, to find all the ways to keep housing prices up rather than to see them moderate. You know, those are just three of the many reasons why I think housing prices are so high right now. And Megan, is that true in Montreal where you are or Ottawa where you're from, that housing prices have escalated quite rapidly? I'm glad you're asking this question because I've been reflecting upon it a lot lately and looking more and more as uh, monthly statistics are being released that compare Canada's different housing markets. So yes, this is absolutely true in, in both of these cities. Rents and residential property prices have increased significantly in Montreal over the past few years, particularly during these past two pandemic years, as in many other cities across the country. And that increase does seem like it will be one of the lasting impacts of the pandemic on housing, at least for the foreseeable future, even as many other things have already started returning to normal. And while the cost of both renting and buying housing in Montreal has continued to be lower than Canada's other largest cities, particularly Toronto and Vancouver, I think it's far too easy to look at any national ranking of this type and dismiss the affordability crisis in Montreal simply because it appears less bad in this comparative sense. 
In the rental market for years, there's been an unreasonable level of competition amongst prospective tenants for the small number of units available at reasonable prices, which has made it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for many low and middle income earners to find an affordable and well-maintained dwelling. In terms of the situation in Ottawa, I've recently seen small single-family homes in modest residential neighborhoods being listed for upwards of $750,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars more than just a few years ago. Uh, simply put, this is not what middle-class housing should cost, and it's an unsustainable situation. Diana, you talked a lot in the book, especially about the impact of millennials and their changing tastes and their changing lifestyles and how they want to live. In what way, in your view, is that affecting the kind of housing that they want? There's a generation that has really kind of rethought their rules of so many different things, whether it's the way that we communicate, our norms at work, et cetera, that it's bound to change how people want to live. And I think that you can't generalize for an entire generation. I do think that there's a segment of millennials who are open to living more communally, wanting to find ways to live more sustainably, wanting to find ways to live in integrated neighborhoods. Um, it's a generation that I think is kind of primed to, to want to live differently. I also think that like, if you look at different trends that you know, intersect with housing, say the fact that you know, a lot of people are very focused on sort of how does something show up on social media or Instagram or so on. So they're much more inclined to be focused on experiences rather than uh, a painting that they're going to keep in their house. Younger people may not have as many like books or, you know, think about CDs or whatever. The lack of stuff sort of also plays into a role of like, how much space do you actually need? Um, and so if you're more focused on sort of experience over stuff, and you're more interested in living in a sort of vibrant experience-oriented neighborhood, you might choose, say, to live in, say, a small bedroom within a co-living environment rather than be thinking, like, I need to live in um, a big house. It's not like how people used to stay in the same job for 25 years and kind of build their life around that. I think people think much more of housing as kind of a temporary um, situation for a period of time. And, and I think that's ultimately, you know, one other thing that I just want to underscore. Oftentimes people will say to me like, well, no one's going to live in co-living for the rest of their life. And it's like, well, it doesn't have to be about living in co-living the rest of your life. For a lot of people, people go through various different phases of different types of housing that they want to be living in. There's just not as enough options for people to live outside of, say, that single family home. Johanna, I've had the delight of experiencing quite a number of your buildings, looking at the units, being inside them. What's your sense as to what buyers and renters want now? If I may, Terry, before I answer that, can I just add one more thing about the cost issue and uh, why the housing prices are going up? We did touch on this, but I, I think the one thing really to emphasize is the sort of financial instrument of housing and how it's become commodified. And I think that's a huge issue. 60% of the global assets are tied in real estate and 75% of that is in residential. And so it's become the most stable and, and most profitable sort of uh, investment over the last while. And we have to have an attitude shift towards it being a human right uh, to have access to housing. Anyway, um, back to your question. I guess I would like to say maybe that people would like to have some sort of agency over their own space. 
but there really aren't those options out there necessarily for, for people to have a say. And so what ends up happening is that we're just looking at the models that already exist and without, again, there being some room in what's being sort of promoted as, okay, this will sell. So we have this sort of vicious cycle of, of realtors sort of t- talking to the developers and saying, well, you know, this sort of product out there that already exists will, will sell and you're going to have the biggest profit this way is what kind of drives the way that then architects get briefed on what they should be designing and what they should be doing. And so that the room for experimentation and doing something different in that formula that's market driven and is tied to finance is really, really narrow again. And so somehow we've got to find ways that we get to experiment a little bit more. And if you look at the sort of early 90s, the super Dutch, the architecture boom in the Netherlands, you know, the government agencies were giving young practitioners at that time grant money to start their own practices around social housing. And a lot of, you know, new developments and and new thoughts on, on housing came from that era. And somehow, again, it comes back to me is that there's got to be a bigger desire politically, um, sort of in terms of policy for us to invest in this thing that we, you know, we spend so much time in our dwelling units over the overall lifetime that certainly that's worth the investment of, of, of doing something of more quality. What's the most effective in terms of persuading governments to care about these governments or community organizations that have some power to coalesce to pull people together on shared values? Well, one is money. And so speaking in numbers, I've been trying to practice that for years on end now and and saying, you know, where the cost implications of all of this thinking is. And I've talked about the importance of compact cities and therefore multifamily housing and organizing cities differently in order to just from a budgetary perspective, of course, it has environmental impact. And then it's really, I guess, trying to get that discussion going uh, to the level where the common folks who don't do this for a living uh, really understand the issues. Some of that density that is so scary to neighborhoods and, and is framed under my wanting to maintain the character of the neighborhood is really exclusionary. And it is what's driving a lot of the cost discussion too. And so somehow getting that education out there, educating also politicians and and decision makers and community leaders about the importance of how we're actually all taxpayers and that, you know, we're in in a way subsidizing the sprawl, uh, subsidizing that development that's unsustainable as a collective. So I think those are maybe the two key things. Any thoughts from you, Diana, or from you, Megan, on what Johanna just let us hear? I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with her. And I was also just sort of thinking about how often housing never makes it to like a national platform of politics in the U.S. at least, um, and sort of becomes a very local kind of issue. But I really feel like that's incredibly needed in order to actually move forward on this is to actually make housing part of a national platform again. And how you do that, I think, is the really hard work. Um, But we need that kind of top level discussion for it to actually become something that people can take action on even at the local level, because without that kind of federal funding and interest and without that awareness, um, I think of, you know, say, for example, climate change as being like, imagine if climate change didn't have a national platform and it was just sort of like a thing that 
you know, each individual county or something was focused on, I think it would be a much less powerful topic for people. And so there's a lot of work to be done to get it to that place. Yeah. And I will just also say, I apologized earlier that I, unfortunately I'm on Eastern standard and and sort of messed up on the timing. So I'd love to hear um, Megan's response and then I will have to jump off. Megan, what would you like to say in a concise way so that Diana can hear it? <laughs> I will do my best, but this is actually a very important moment in the conversation. So I'll, I'll try and say it quickly. I actually would argue that there's nothing more important to today's conversation than the topic of policy. Just reflecting on the work that, that we've done in the exhibition at the Canadian Centre for Architecture, we didn't struggle to find architectural proposals on, on these topics. I will tell you that. And I think You won't be surprised to hear that the vast majority of what we selected and presented in this project was unbuilt. So we really have to assess where the barriers are there to taking these actually wonderful projects and ideas and making them a lived reality. My concern is that it takes a crisis for governments to react on this topic. And we're already in such an intense situation in the housing market in Canada alone And then what's unfortunate in these situations is that the solutions end up being reactionary. And it would be so great if we could find ourselves in a situation where we're deliberately planning for this and some of these wonderful projects um, can see the light of day. We should let Diana go. You've got to head back out into Philadelphia. Thank you very much for your time here, Diana. Really great. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed the presentations, Megan and Johanna. Me too. And I've got two more books to read as soon as I can get them. Okay. Thanks again. And uh, Megan, Marin, thank you very much for your time. Can hardly wait to see your brand new book just out yesterday. Also to look at Johanna Hermes book, When It Gets Pulled Together, uh, we get the chance to explore some ideas more deeply. We covered a great deal of territory. I appreciate your patience. I apologize for my occasionally meandering questions, but uh, this is a subject that is very passionate for me. And I'm grateful for the amount of time that you took to spend with us today. Thank you so much. And thanks to the University of Manitoba and to Jason Chan for organizing this. And Jay, you might have something to add to the conversation as well. Anything that you'd like to say? Quick question, Joanna. When are you expecting this book to be published, printed? Oh, if I could tell you, I I would. We're just in the conversation with a number of publishers. So we're sort of completing the last little pieces of of graphics mostly, and the written part is done. 2022 is what we say, but uh, at what point, I don't know. Uh, another question that uh, uh, just is a, it's an issue, I guess, um, related to the exhibition, uh, Megan. Um, if we can reinvent the lifestyle, can we actually make it sellable and then maybe the housing market will change? Because if the lifestyle has already changed in the market level, we're married to the previous model, and that's why we're going after previous architectural sort of typology. If we really make the new lifestyle sellable and maybe convince the market that this is the way we live, do you think the market will start to shift maybe? Is there hope there? That's a really interesting question. And I think as we worked on the exhibition, we really looked at that sort of both directions, which is to say that we looked at sort of starting from architecture and it's sort of influencing lifestyles and then lifestyles influencing architecture. I do think actually in some cases there is a a little bit of difficulty in getting people to accept that a lot of the ways in which they're currently living don't make sense. These points of view are so entrenched. And in fact, that's why I felt it was so important. If I was going to use one sort of theoretical framing to introduce the exhibition, it was that topic of, of domestic realism and to sort of try to reflect on 
how we can shake up such an entrenched sort of point of view that sort of the idea that the single family home is the best shape for our life and our families, which in many cases it is not, and that actually that it's going to offer us some kind of financial success, which feels like an absurd statement right now, at least for us as individuals. Obviously, there's a lot of other parties making huge amounts of money off of this. This might be a little bit of a divergence from your question, but I can't help but circle back also to what, Yana, you were saying before about the financialization of housing and how we really have to rethink housing, advocate for the right to housing, and that this isn't merely an object of real estate speculation. And I think in the exhibition, we definitely had, say, three or four projects very in, in their very early stages where architects are advocating for a different kind of way of approaching ownership and equity, accepting the fact that they, <laughs> they are resigned to working within capitalism to sort of instigate their changes. That's a very tough question, but I, I think it's really hard to sort of shake up these, these ingrained beliefs and, and sort of enact them on a wider scale. Shall we conclude and let people get on with uh, their incredibly vital work? Thank you. Say hello to Ithaca Forest, uh, Johanna. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Megan, thank you very much. On all the times that I've been to Montreal, there were so many times that I thought I need to move here because it is such an appealing city. It's a wonderful place. Thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. Grateful for that. See you again soon, I hope. Megan Marin, Johanna Herme, and Diana Lind were all speakers on March 11th as part of the final event at the Atmosphere 14 Design Symposium from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. Thanks so much to the U of M team that creates Prairie Design Lab, Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly. I'm your host, producer, and writer, Terry McLeod. We can be heard on Apple and Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud and Spotify. You can hear us on the radio every Wednesday morning at 11.30 a.m. on UMFM 101.5 FM. See you next week. <music>